0: to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, starting in verse 28. While you're turning, let me remind you that this chapter is at the very center of John's gospel. There's 10 chapters before, and there's 10 chapters after it. And I don't think that that's an accident because this chapter is the turning point and John's gospel. And even though uh, Jesus performed countless miracles while he was on earth, John chose to focus on seven specific signs that led up to the sign of sign, Christ's own resurrection. So we've seen Jesus turn water to wine, heal man on his deathbed, heal man who was paralyzed, feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, we've seen him walk on water, and we've seen him give sight to a man who was born blind. And if you're counting, we've seen six miracles so far, and John 11 tells the story of the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus. It was about a month ago that we were last in John chapter 11, so let me remind you that in the early part of this chapter, Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. So in verse 5, John tells us, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. As the story goes on, Lazarus dies. Now, if Jesus really loved Lazarus, why would he let him die? We've already seen him heal a dying man from miles away. Surely he could have done it again. But John tells us that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die precisely because Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So how on earth is that possible? Well, the answer is found in the rest of John chapter 11. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, you hold the power of life and death, and unless you act, all of us are as dead as in our hearts as Lazarus was in John 11. So we ask that you give us life. Resurrect our dead souls so that we can understand what the seventh sign is pointing to. And may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is preached. Amen. On November 13th, 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote to John Baptiste Leroy, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. If you've been on this planet for very long, you know that these words are true. But even though we know that one day everyone around us will die, including ourselves, it's still a shock when we lose someone. Author Lemney Snicket described death this way. He said, It's a curious thing, the death of a loved one. We all know that our time in this world is limited and eventually all of us will end up underneath some sheet, never to wake up. And yet it is always a surprise when it happens to someone we know. It is like waking or walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark and thinking there is one more stair than there is. Your foot falls down through the air and there is a sickly moment of dark surprise as you try and readjust the way you thought of things. And if you can relate to the words of Lemony Snicket, then you know the pain of losing someone. But you also know how difficult it is to respond to death. When you lose someone, they say you go through the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And as you're processing your grief, it can feel impossible to know what to say or the right way you're supposed to respond to tragedy. And it's in these moments of confusion that our faith is most likely to be tested. Is God really good? Is he really in control? Is there really a plan? Is there really life after death? And I think there's a, a reason for that confusion and that feeling of unnaturalness. And that reason is this whole process is unnatural. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, the design was eternal life. He told Adam and Eve that if they were free to eat of any fruit of the garden except for the tree in the middle of the garden because on the day they would eat of it, they would surely die. And they did eat. And by doing so, they introduced sin and sickness and death into the world so that not one of our lives has been untouched by Adam's fall. And this morning, we're gonna see Jesus respond to the death of a loved one. The author of life will come face to face with the reality of death, and he does not respond to death at all like we would expect. And my prayer for you this morning is that we would embrace Christ's attitude towards death so that we can rightly respond to death when we're faced with it. Once again, my prayer is that we would embrace Christ's attitude towards death so that we can rightly respond to death when we're faced with it. Because in John 11, we're going to see three ways Jesus responds to death. Three ways Jesus responds to death. First, Jesus responds to death with anger in verses 28 through 33. Secondly, Jesus responds to death with sympathy in verses 34 through 37. And finally, we'll see that Jesus responds to death with power in verses 38 through 44. He responds to death with anger with sympathy and with power, but let's start with the first, with anger. Look with me to verses 28 through 31. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Stop right there. Even though it's four days after Lazarus has died, there's still many mourners in Mary and Martha's house. Because when someone died in your household, there was an expected 30 days of mourning during that time where the only reason you'd leave your house was to go to the grave of your loved one. And that's why it's so extraordinary that Martha left her house in verse 20 when she heard Jesus was coming. Not only were Israelite funerals long, but they were also much more intense and emotional than our funerals. At, at our funeral services, we're mostly silent and somber and composed. We're, we're very emotionless compared to the Israelites. At a Jewish funeral, it was expected that if you really loved someone, you would openly weep and wail for them. And that process could be exhausting to families, so they would actually hire professional mourners who would openly weep for your loved ones when you needed a break from weeping. And um, in fact, it was custom that even poor families were expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional mourners for a funeral. And there's evidence to suggest that Lazarus' family was very wealthy. So we're only four days into this process and Mary is still surrounded by friends and families and professional mourners. So when Jesus sins for her privately, the mourners mourners follow Mary, assuming she was going to weep for her brother. But of course, that's not where she goes. So look at what happens when she meets Jesus in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary confronts Jesus with the exact same words as her sister Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And once again, we see this reaction to death that that is mixed with both faith and doubt. It's possible that Mary believed that Jesus had the power to heal, but not to resurrect. But there is at least one major difference between Mary's reaction to Jesus and Martha's reaction. Notice where Mary is in verse 32. When she saw him, she fell at his feet. That's Mary's favorite place, isn't it? At the feet of Jesus. It was Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, wiped his feet with her hair and with her tears. And spoiler alert, she's gonna do it again in chapter 12. The famous story of Mary and Martha was when Jesus was staying at their house and teaching and Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened while Martha was working in the kitchen. And Martha was so angry that she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed only one, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. We always see Mary at the feet of Jesus with a posture of worship. Even as she's grieving and even as her faith is mixed with these doubts, she still has a posture of worship. When Martha came, she stood up to accuse Jesus, but here Mary falls at Jesus' feet in grief and adoration. And I think that's the difference. I think that's why Jesus is going to respond to Mary very differently than he responded to Martha. Look at his response with me in verse 33. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. When Jesus sees Mary and the Jews weeping, he was deeply moved. But in what way was he deeply moved is the question. Was he deeply moved with gladness like he was in verse 15? Was he moved with sorrow like these mourners? Well, actually that phrase there in your Bibles that says deeply moved, it carries the idea of groaning in anger Or disgust. That's why actually the New Living Translation translate this verse, a deep anger welled up within him. And that makes us uncomfortable because we don't typically think of Jesus as angry. I think it even made the translators uncomfortable, which is why they said deeply moved in the spirit instead of angry or with disgust. There are probably many of you who thought I was nuts when you heard my first point, (laughs) but verse 33 is clearly communicating that Jesus is responding with anger. And to be clear, there's a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Ephesians 4 verse 36 actually commands believers, be angry and do not sin. If you see evil in the world, it's natural and righteous to be angry. When you turn on the news and you saw what happened in Texas, there's a natural reaction of anger and disgust at the sin and the suffering in this world. The problem with us is that most of the time when we get angry, if we're being honest here, it's not righteously. We we lose control. We fly off the handle. We see red. But when Jesus is angry, he never loses control. He never lashes out in sin. But here he is angry. Why is Jesus angry? Who is he angry at? Well, there's some scholars who would argue that Jesus was angry with this crowd because of their lack of faith. I just don't think that's quite right because Jesus has encountered unbelief in practically every chapter of this gospel yet, but yet John has never described Jesus as having this anger or disgust within himself. I don't think he's mad with the people as they're moved with grief. I think Jesus is angry with death itself. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation is groaning together while it waits to be set free from the curse of sin. All of creation longs to be free from sin and sickness and death. If you ever been to a hospital and you've lost a loved one, you probably went away with anger and grief and you just said, I hate death. I hate disease. I hate these afflictions or whatever it may be. And Jesus who became like us in every way except without sin, he feels that pain and the brokenness of the world and death itself, and he groans with anger and disgust. And that's what, what Jesus is experiencing here. He responds to death with anger, but that's not his only response. He also responds with sympathy. As Jesus sees the tears of Mary and these mourners, he does not correct Mary's theology like he did with Martha. His reaction is totally different. Look at me in verse, uh, verses 34, 35. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. When Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, he expresses not his anger, but his grief. And in verse 35, we find the shortest verse in our English Bibles. And one of the most profound. Jesus comes face to face with the effects of sin. And when he's traveling to the gravesite of the one whom he loved, Jesus wept. On verse 35, that word that's translated wept, is different from the word in verse 33 that you see is translated weeping. In verse 33, to weep is almost like a howl or a wail. It's a loud kind of crying. But in verse 35, the picture is tears streaming down his face. The weeping of Jesus is different than the weeping of the rest. Now, let me tell you why that's unbelievable to read. Number one, because John has not stopped arguing. From the first verse of this gospel, that Jesus is God in the flesh. However, when Jesus has encountered this unbelievable situation, he, he weeps. To ancient Greek scholars, God was totally emotionless and unmovable. They argued that emotion was the opposite of reason, and to be vulnerable was a sign of weakness. So God could not have vulnerabilities, he cannot have emotions. But here we have the unmoved mover, and he's moved. Here we have the word of God made flesh, and when he encounters Lazarus' grave, he is not stoic, he is not emotionless, he is not uncaring, but tears come streaming down his face. I grew up in a tradition where I was surrounded by countless pictures of Jesus, and, and no matter what Jesus was doing in these pictures, he always had a solemn, emotionless face, even as he's suffering on the cross, he is just content. And it's almost like he's napping. <laughs> and we have to remember, church, that Jesus is truly human with human emotions and characteristics in every way that you or I are. He had human emotions and he experienced all of them when he got, whenever he came. He got angry when he turned over the tables in the temple. He cried out in agony on the cross. And here at the tomb of Lazarus, He wept, not for himself, but for those around him and for Lazarus as he responds to this death with sympathy because of the pain of those he loves. And what makes this verse so amazing is that Jesus is not just truly human. He's also truly God. And because he's truly God, he has two things that you and I do not have. Jesus has all knowledge and he also has all power. He not only has the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead, But he knows that in about 10 minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's why he came to Bethany in the first place. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the grave, but that does not negate Christ's tears. You see, we have a a savior who is not only sovereign, but sympathetic. We are not just his pawns that he sacrifices for his own reason. He feels our pain with us. And when we weep, he weeps. I've been in some Christian circles where it, it almost feels like a sin to be sad. I don't know if you've ever gotten this feeling. I don't know if you've ever gotten that vibe from, from church, some churches. Maybe it's just me. But I've been in some churches where I've been told, you need to be a light to those around you. And because you have the peace that surpasses all knowledge, you got to go sh- show people how joyful you are. And, and that works a little bit. But what happens when you don't feel that way? That kind of thing is not only unbiblical, but it forces people to hide when they're depressed or they're unhappy or they do not feel as if they have the peace that surpasses all knowledge. Even at Christian funerals, I hear things like, we don't need to be sad because we'll see them in heaven. But Jesus is about to see Lazarus in 10 minutes and yet he still wept. Sorrow and sadness are not sins. They're the regular expected and even godly emotions of the christian we have a savior who is not unaffected by grief but he enters into our grief and the road to heaven is flooded with the tears of the saints there's a reason jesus earned the nickname man of sorrows and that reason is because jesus responds to death not just with anger but also with sympathy but jesus also responds to death with power look with me to verses 36 through 37 so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This crowd is understandably divided. Jesus' tears are a powerful statement of his love, and some of the people recognize it, but some of them doubt his genuineness. Some of the crowd simply rephrase what Mary and Martha have been saying. No prophet in all the Old Testament ever gave sight to someone born blind. But here stands Jesus, who has given sight to the blind, and he allowed Lazarus to die. Here it seems like Jesus' love and his power are incompatible. But remember verses 5 and 6. Jesus loved Lazarus, and therefore he delayed. We're so quick to to judge God's love by our circumstances. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. When really, we should be judging what we're going through. We should be judging our circumstances by his love for us. He loves me. Therefore, what I'm going through is because of his love for me. Amen? But this crowd doesn't understand these important truths, and Jesus doesn't respond to their accusation. Instead, look at what he does in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Then Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. In verse 38, Jesus is deeply moved again. And that's the same word that we were talking about in verse 33. And that means that he's angry. And he tells Martha, take away the stone. And now taking away the stone was not an easy and simple thing. It was incredibly heavy. And intentionally difficult to get into because you didn't want animals or grave robbers to enter the tomb. And Mary clearly does not understand what Jesus is about to do. She may think that Jesus just wanted to see Lazarus' body and grieve over him one last time. That's why we often have open caskets at funerals to give people a last opportunity to see their loved ones. But Martha uh, explains it's been four days. And the reason four days is significant is, is for two reasons. First... There was an old Jewish superstition that the soul of a dead person hovered around the body for three days, and the spirit may reenter the body at any time. But once the fourth day had come and decomposition began, the soul would abandon the body because it was not worth reentering. Now, of course, that's not true, and that's not in the Bible. If you've been around funerals these days, you've probably heard some of these strange myths. You may have heard, well, God just needed one more angel in heaven as if we become angels when we die. But once again, that's just not true and it's not in the Bible. It's just a superstition. In fact, nobody in here better say at my funeral, he became an angel. Because in the Bible, the saints, those who are forgiven and redeemed by Christ, have a place more glorious than an angel. If I die and I'm in heaven, don't say I'm an angel. That's a demotion. Don't demote me. I'm just saying But there's another reason four days is significant. Number one, because of that superstition. But number two, Lazarus' body would have already begun to decompose. And uh, as the King James Version so eloquently states, Lord, by this time, he stinketh. The smell when they opened the tomb would have been a clear evidence that Lazarus had not been faking it, that he truly was dead, that he wasn't just mostly dead or slightly dead, No, no, no. He was all dead. He was dead, dead. And everyone would have known it the moment that stone was rolled away. Martha is saying to Jesus, you are too late to heal him. His spirit is gone. His body is already decomposing. But you and I know that Jesus has never been late a day in his life. He arrives precisely when he means to. I've heard some people say that our God is an 11th hour God. That's, That's not quite true. I I think it's more like God is a 8 a.m. the next day God. The clock has already struck midnight. By all appearances, it's, it's too late. It's irretrievable. It's impossible. Yet our God still comes precisely when he means to. He is never late. Jesus was not too late for Lazarus. He's not too late for you. You may have cried out to God again and again and prayed and prayed over and over again, Lord, answer me. And you've given up hope. But the Lord does not work on our time. He works on his time and he is never late. Amen. Amen. Jesus is on his time and he is not concerned with the smell or the decomposition or the effort it takes to roll away the stone. So this is what he says in verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, we don't know whether Martha understood what was about to happen, or even if she had enough faith to believe what he was about to do. But she had at least enough faith to follow his orders. So in verse 41, they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. As the stone has been rolled away and the crowd is waiting around anxiously, maybe waiting to see if Lazarus comes out, but there's no sign. Everyone can smell Lazarus at this point. The crowd is waiting for something to happen and Jesus begins praying praying out loud and it's a strange prayer. It's weird. Jesus thanks the father for answering his prayer before he asked for anything. The father heard and answered Jesus' prayer before Jesus prayed it. And Jesus explains, I am not doubting you that you answer my prayers, but I'm praying out loud so that everyone around me can understand and believe that I've been sent by you. And then in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus cried with a loud voice, probably because of another superstition. At the time, those who were known as witches and sorcerers were known to mutter some kind of magical words under their breath as they performed their magic. But Jesus cries out so that everyone can see that he is no magician or sorcerer and he's not uttering a magic word. He simply commands Lazarus by name to rise by his own power and own authority. Charles Spurgeon put it so perfectly. If Jesus had not called Lazarus by name, he would have emptied the graveyard. Pastor Tony Morita said on this verse, the good shepherd's sheep know his voice even when they're in the tomb. But Jesus, with the same voice that said, let there be light, commands Lazarus by name to come out. And look at what happens in verse 44. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Even though Lazarus had been dead for four days, everyone could smell him. Everyone could see the aftermath. Everyone was there when it happened. When Jesus calls, Lazarus answered, as Jesus cries out, the brain tissue, which had not had any blood or oxygen, is healed and restored, and his lungs begin to work again, and his whole body is healed, and he walks out of the tomb and responds to the call, still with wrappings around his body. And that ra- those wrappings prove that Lazarus was resurrected, not just some ghost or spirit, but with a physical body. So why did Lazarus go through all of this when Jesus could have healed him while he was sick? So that God's power and glory could be shown to the world through Lazarus. Jesus let Lazarus die and then raised him from the grave because Jesus loved him. And so that Lazarus could experience firsthand the power and the mighty hand of God. God let Lazarus die so that all those at the funeral may believe. And even so that some today here may believe. Because while Lazarus's resurrection was incredible, it was only a taste of what was to come. It was only a foreshadowing of what Jesus would soon do by dying on the cross and then rising from the grave himself with power. And there is a day coming when Christ will resurrect everyone who is in his name with the same power he demonstrated in that graveyard in Bethany. You see, my prayer for us this morning is that we would embrace Christ's attitude towards death so that we could rightly respond to death when we're faced with it. Because in John 11, we saw three ways Jesus responded to death, with anger, with sympathy, and with power. So how have you responded when you have come face to face with death? Have you often found yourself saying, Lord, if you had been here, maybe you believe in Jesus, maybe you believe in the Bible, but your faith is mixed with doubt. Maybe you've encountered sin and suffering and death in your own life, and you felt as if God was too late to answer your prayers. He wasn't late. His delays are not denials. And let me ask, what about your own afterlife? Where are you going after you die? What have you been putting your hope and trust in? If it's not trust in Jesus, then you have no hope because He alone is the resurrection and the life. He's the only hope any of us have for eternal life. So I have three pastoral charges for you. Three ways that you can embrace Christ's attitude towards death so that you can respond to death when it comes your way. First pastoral charge trust in Jesus and never die. Trust in Jesus and never die. It is appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. We're all going to be held accountable for the sins we've committed. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. See, every time that you sin, it's like you're an employee clocking in for your shift and the paycheck you earn for your work is death. Have you ever been angry, but you've lost control of yourself? Even if you've never lashed out and attacked someone, examine your heart. Jesus even said if anyone is angry in his heart even calling his brother a fool they're guilty of murder of the heart the unrighteous anger of our hearts will be dealt with on the day of judgment and that's just one of the commands of the Lord but here's the good news Jesus was never unrighteously angry His anger was always pure and holy, and he lived the sinless life that you could never have lived. And then he went to the cross, where he absorbed the righteous anger of God Almighty that sinners like you and I deserve. And then he was buried, but he had the power to raise himself from the dead, and that's exactly what happened three days later. So now, if anyone will turn from their sin and trust alone in his sacrifice, all your sins will be forgiven. And you will have eternal life. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. I know some people who think you gotta be baptized to be forgiven, and that's just not true. I know some people think you gotta go to church to be forgiven, and that's just not true. I even know some people say that if you pray a prayer exactly the right way with the exact right words, that's how you get forgiven, and that's not true. If your trust is in your baptism, then your trust is not in Jesus. If your trust is in your church attendance or some prayer or any good works, then your trust is not in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the resurrection of life. Life is found in Christ alone. And Ephesians 2 tells us that salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works so that no one may boast. Baptism, church attendance, praying, prayers, they're all good things. But Jesus is the only way to live forever. He offers that life to any and all who would turn from themselves and trust alone in him. So trust Jesus and never die. Second pastoral charge. Grieve biblically. Grieve biblically. I said earlier that I've met many Christians who live like it's sinful to ever be sad. But let me tell you something, church. Grief is biblical. It's not only okay to grieve and weep and to mourn, but it is godly. There's a whole category of the Psalms called Psalms of lament where the writer is just pouring out their heart to god in sorrow and i know that's old testament but in the new testament we're commanded to sing the psalms of the old testament which i think to me tells me they have some application for us today that you can go to the psalms and pour out your heart to god and cry out to him the bible commands believers to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and that's exactly what jesus does in this passage. And listen to me, church, there, there is, of course, a difference between the weeping that believers do and the weeping that non-believers do. I think that's even why we saw a different word used for the weeping that Mary and the others did and the weeping that Jesus does. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we do not grieve like those without hope, for we believe Jesus died, rose again. And so we believe that God will raise up all believers in Jesus who have died. Do we grieve? Absolutely, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. It takes on a whole new meaning because we have a Savior who is the resurrection and the life, amen? Amen. That's the second pastoral charge, grieve biblically. Third pastoral charge, look forward to your resurrection. Look forward to your resurrection. We know that Lazarus' resurrection was just a foreshadowing of Christ's own resurrection, First Corinthians tells us that every believer will be raised like Christ was raised with a glorified body that will never die. Philippians 3.21, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his power will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious bodies. There is a healing coming for every saint in this church. There is a day when you will witness the power And the glory of Almighty God, and you'll realize why all the suffering you have been through has been necessary. There is a day when Christ will return and He will end all suffering, He will rid the world of sin, and He will fully defeat His final enemy, death itself. Lazarus was just a preview of the things to come, because all who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. And on that day, the sick will be healed, the blind will see. The disabled will walk and there will be no more sun because the glory of God will be our light. And on that day, all the suffering in this life will feel light and momentary compared to the glory we'll witness when we'll fall at the feet of Jesus and worship just like Mary did. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Fork and Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horecanbaptist.com.